I honestly think that if you find something is hard, you should do more of it in all of your life. I'm a terrible dancer. I think dancing is hard. That is a signal to me. I need to do more dancing. I need to take some dancing lessons. It used to be the case with public speaking that it was difficult. It's not difficult anymore. And now I think I'm pretty good at it. But I have never regretted sort of leaning in to the things that are hard. What is up, you sexy bastard? It is your boy, Dilly Dilly, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. This week, I had the pleasure of interviewing Devin Stone. Devin is a trial lawyer by day, Clark Kent by night, and YouTube star of a legal channel called Legal Eagle. I found it really fascinating that Devin could turn lawyering into a successful content business. And then it made me realize people like doctors, cab drivers, and literally, I found it fascinating that Devin could turn lawyering into a successful content business. Then it made me realize how doctors, cab drivers, and literally any business owner out there could copy his formula. If you've ever used the excuse that you're not interesting enough to start a YouTube channel or a blog or a newsletter, then this episode is a must listen for you. In this conversation, you'll enjoy three gigantic things. Number one, some interesting insights into what it's like to pursue a career in law. Boring. Number two, how to create content around what you do at your day job and how to make it interesting. And number three, the law of 100 and why it is the key to unlock success for any aspiring person out there. Enjoy those three things plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we dive into the show, make sure you're subscribed to my YouTube channel. Come on, y'all. YouTube.com slash OKDork, where I put out two to three tasty business videos and exclusive templates to help people on their business journey. Also, I want to let you know about a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy, The Jordan Harbinger Show. He's a good friend of mine and an impressive interviewer. He's an expert at dissecting top performers like Kobe Bryant, RIP, Malcolm Gladwell, and many, many more to extract the information that will be most useful to improve your life. So check out that Jordan Harbinger show to keep improving. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Greg Taylor. Sounds like a uh, golf player from the US of A. He left a review saying, I just listened to Noah's podcast and it is fantastic. Today, I listened to episode 79, 22 exact things we did to sell $1 million in courses. That's pretty cool. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for your feedback. I really appreciate you and every other listener out there. If you want to shout out in a future episode, leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Dogster, anywhere online, I will find it. Can I call you my lawyer from now on? <laughs> if we uh, if we form an attorney-client relationship, sure. I went hot tubbing with my one lawyer on Sunday. Do you hot tub with your clients? Only if I'm lucky. <laughs> I think it's weird. It's it's interesting to hang out with lawyers when I'm not on the clock. Yeah. Well, they, they probably complain a lot more than they do when they're on the clock. How do you think about time, especially that a lot of your you know lawyer income is through hours? I have a very strange relationship with time management because lawyers, at least in the big firm world, have to account for their time in tenths of an hour. Point one is six minutes. So every six minutes, you have to account for it. So really right out of law school, I had to make sure that every second of my life was more or less accounted for, which sort of gives you a, a love-hate relationship. You you put in a ton of time on projects and sometimes it's necessary, sometimes it's not. But the firm world incentivizes you to do sort of everything perfectly. And the firm doesn't care that it takes a long time. In fact, it's sort of a good thing that it takes a long time. That's how they make their revenue. It's sort of the opposite of the SaaS model or the a lot of other service industries. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's pretty similar to most service industries, actually, that the person who's providing the services wants to 
do as much as possible. And, and the person who's receiving them wants to wants you to put in uh, the least amount of work possible. Yeah, just always interesting with the hours. And I, I every time I call my lawyers, we have we've had different lawyers over the years. I always have to I'm like, are you billing me for this time? Because I would tell jokes. I'd call them and have all this fun jokes, and, like, and then I'd get a bill. And I was like, I just got charged for for goofing off. Uh, so I'm always very. It sucks though. It doesn't feel like it really symbiotic relationship sometimes. Yeah, well, you know, you're the one that's in control of the relationship. Lawyers have become so expensive that you know your average big firm DC, New York, LA attorney is probably billing out north of eight hundred dollars an hour. The good ones are well north of a thousand dollars an hour. So you kind of have to get creative. Uh, you can define your attorney client relationship however you want. It doesn't have to be based hourly. I don't want to hurt the feelings of all the lawyers that are out there, but <laughs> you know, you can organize it so that it's based on productivity or based on the results. It doesn't have to be based on on hours. I like that idea. Like here, here's I've done it a few times where it's like, here's a project we've done. I guess you got me wondering though, like who becomes a lawyer nowadays? if I can defend the legal profession for, for the moment. <laughs> so I was or, or am still a, a litigator. My job basically consists of learning new law every time. I, I don't specialize in any particular legal field. And every day when I'm practicing law, I have to learn some new aspect of it. My specialty, as it were, is the process of lawsuits and litigation, uh, filing briefs, being before a judge, being in trial. And as a result, I get to learn new things every day, which <laughs> honestly was the thing that, that prepared me most for YouTube is that I'm learning something new absolutely every day. I think the legal profession is still a great one for people that are curious, that want to learn more about the world, especially the laws that govern our everyday acts. And often people that want to make a difference because that's kind of how you do it in courts. You can do a lot of good in the court system. How do you think you've done good in the court system? <sighs> well, that was a good sigh. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I love it when people do the sighs. Like that's one of my new things to observe people. They're like, gosh, oh, like it's either it's relaxing or like, oh, interesting. You know, it is a conflicted sigh. I, uh, I have done a lot of good for my clients. I don't know that I have done that much good in the courtroom, uh, done that much good uh, for society uh, in, in the courtroom. I've made law. I've, uh, through my, lawsuits. I've clarified the law through uh, appellate opinions in a way that's good, but I have not been at the forefront of uh, civic justice in the way that uh, that I, I think I would like to, and I think that I'll, I'll be doing in the future. I guess, how do you describe yourself? Because one thing I was curious lately, when I go out or I'm meeting new people, it's like, oh, what do you do? I'm like, I kind of run a software business, but I'm kind of a writer. Like I'm on, on a dating app, I put I was a teacher. And I was like, oh man, they're gonna think I'm poor. Uh, which, you know, it's not all teachers are poor, but it, it was just, it just started making me reflect, uh, positively, like uh, how people think of themselves. You know, one thing that I think is interesting is how we market ourselves in general, that everything that we do sort of reflects back on ourselves and is a reflection of, of what, how we want to be portrayed these days. I think how I think about myself, I think I'm probably more of an educator as much as I am a lawyer. I think being a lawyer is sort of very core to my being, but the thing that I'm probably most proud of is that I can reach people and make their lives a little bit better by teaching them how to think like a lawyer and how to understand some of the crazy laws and crazy legal issues that we're dealing with. So I think, yeah, first and foremost, uh, probably educator first, which is funny because you're saying you identify as a teacher as well. I think that that's noble. I think that there's probably a reason why that's the go-to 
sort of how we think about ourselves uh, in the first instance. I mean, that makes sense to me. With law nowadays, what do you think most people don't get? What stuff are you saying that people are like, oh my God, I had no idea? Because you, you're, you're doing a lot of stuff around law. I mean, you're the lawyer guy. A couple big things come to mind. Number one is that uh, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's right. Ooh, that's interesting. I'm very conflicted when I say that because people obviously go to the channel and, and they want an explanation as to what is legal and what we can do to use the law to further the ends of justice. But you know, to take a step back, just because something is codified into the law, all that means is that someone passed a law. Some legislature got together and they said this was the thing that we are going to codify. But number one, that doesn't even make it law. There's a difference between legislation and law that just because the speed limit says it's 50 miles per hour doesn't mean that's actually the law. Because if no one ever gives you a ticket for going above that speed limit, then can we really say that that is in fact the law? That the law is more about this emergent thing that we all agree to abide by. And just because it's codified in legislation doesn't necessarily make it the law. And then taking a, a step back, being even more abstract, just because someone codified it into law doesn't mean that that's the right thing. And I think I think it's a great thing that, especially recently, society has sort of come to the understanding that there are a lot of laws that are on the books that might not be... Uh, good for society. And we're taking a hard look at that. And it's it's a long time coming. It's We should have done that, done a lot of this a, a long time ago. What's a lawyer perspective of everything going on these days? Like from <laughs> the ma- All the different things, man, everything. It's terror, rage, just being in a constant state of, of infuriation. I mean, it's sorrow too. I see that the legal system, which I hold up on a pedestal, is being subverted for some really nefarious ends. And so I, I probably take it a little bit more personally than than most people do. It's ironic that I try and stay relatively apolitical on my channel that more I'm for the most part with relatively few exceptions. I'm I feel like my role is to explain more than it is to opine on a lot of the things that's going on. But we've seen a lot of completely unprecedented things in the last three years. And we're really learning the difference between laws and norms that we've had a lot of norms where things were just done as they've always been done. And it worked out pretty well. But when you realize that there's nothing that actually forces people to abide by those norms, bad things can happen. And we're definitely seeing a lot of examples of that now. But you were saying, I kind of cut you off on that. Things you're noticing that people aren't aware of, or people are kind of learning about these days. So law versus legislation. Is there any other kind of observations? Probably that um, the legal system can only do so much that we get this impression from some of the, the the more famous Supreme Court cases or the legal procedurals on TV that it seems like you can accomplish just about anything using the legal system. And that's absolutely not true. That there are lots of, of limits that are specifically created to prevent going too far. That it's supposed to be the legislators and Congress that are the ones that are making laws. And the judicial system is meant to adjudicate disputes, but it's not supposed to make law and it's not supposed to necessarily change law. So yeah, man, I mean, I'm, I'm the first one out there that's trying to uh, change the law for the better, but we also have to recognize that um, it can only do so much. And that's probably a good thing too. We don't want unelected judges making too drastic of changes. 
how do you do that lately? You said you, you like being a beginner and you like learning new things. Do you intentionally do it or is it like you see something, you get curious and go after that? I am fascinated with learning new things. So um, I try and make time throughout the week to learn piano, to work on my voice, to learn videography and, and photography for the, the YouTube channel. I don't have a, a particular like mindfulness practice, but <laughs> I'm just constantly floored at, at all the things that are constantly happening. So it's, it's hard not to be grateful for, <laughs> for a lot of that stuff. So uh, I should definitely make more time. I, I do try and journal every couple days, but you know, I, I don't have any specific uh, practice that, uh, that I should. Sadly, I'm, I'm one of the few YouTube people that, you know, doesn't geek out over uh, like notes apps and, and uh, reminders. Yeah, it's unbelievable how many videos there are about taking notes. I'm like, is anyone actually working? Uh, like, I think that's the problem with a lot of people is it's fun and easy to, to watch a video about how to play piano, but to sit your ass on the piano and actually hit the buttons or the keys is, is challenging. And it's like, oh, I need to write a book. So let me get all the software out there versus sit and write the book. Yeah. We're so afraid of being alone with our thoughts and being alone with action. A lot of that is just such a distraction that always perfection is the, the enemy of good and that you're always looking for the right notes app or the right word processor when it doesn't matter. Just sit down to write in the text edit app or, or Microsoft Word or whatever. It's so much harder to put yourself on the line and to, to actually create something from nothing. I, th I think people are, are terrified of creation in general. That itself is one of the, the more terrifying things. I think that's sort of at the heart of why people are afraid of public speaking and afraid of like making a their first YouTube video. It's, it's, the, it's the fear of falling flat on your face and learning that something you created is not good. Go on. We're, you know, we're terrified of failure. And that's, I think, directly linked to the act of actually making something that if you put yourself out there and you choose to make something that did not previously exist, and then someone else is out there and they say, that thing is not good. It takes a pretty cold heart to, to kind of brush that aside. And I know a lot of, of people that are, that are on YouTube that can't hack it because of the comments. They'll get a hundred effusive comments that are just, you're the greatest thing I've ever seen. And uh, you know, your channel got me through college. And then they get one comment from some jerk that probably watched 30 seconds of the video and they take that to heart. Um, uh, Natalie Wynn, who, who runs uh, ContraPoints, it's something like the weight of negativity that we overvalue the negative more than we value the positive. And it you know, just creates this albatross around your neck because we're all just terrified that we're not going to measure up. Um, it's a really hard thing to get over. I'm lucky in that I've always been a corporate lawyer. So it's really hard to hurt my feelings that, uh, you know, you can write all the mean things you want in my comments, but uh, nothing's as bad as being a, a corporate lawyer in general. So, um, <laughs> so do your worst. It's not going to stop me. I, I think the two things that I, I think I know for myself, and probably a lot of people are curious is how do people take boring careers that aren't influencers or content creators and make one that's interesting, right? Like I think Ali, who introduced us, is I, I love that, that guy and, you know, being a lawyer and you know, I guess it's like there's a lot of, you know, the pimple popper lady that has a popular show. That's a lot of peas. I guess there's a lot of careers out there that could make content around it. I guess, how did you consider that? Because I, I think maybe a lot of people like my brother, who's a doctor, I don't know if he enjoys making videos per se, but it's like, how do you take a normal profession or standard and then turn that into a social media or influencer profession or entertainer? 
you know, for me, it was just scratching my own itch. I have a lot of lawyer friends. And what do we like to do? We like to talk about legal issues in the news. We like to criticize shows like Suits or, uh, uh, or Better Call Saul. And we love to talk about how everyone gets legal issues wrong. I mean, that's part of being a lawyer is you're always telling the other side that they're wrong. And so for me, I just, I just pointed a camera at myself. There is this, this trend of professionals mm. reacting to things about their profession on YouTube. And I think in general, people are curious. They, they want to know what the average daily life of a lawyer is like. They want to know what it's like being a doctor. They want to know what it feels like in the case of a doctor to be able to look at the human body and know how it works. And for me, it's the same thing that I think people want to know what it's like to think like a lawyer in the sense that I know what people can and cannot do. I know that I can look at a law and I can figure out how that affects the people that are affected by that law, whether it's industry or individuals, or I can look at a situation where two people get in a fight on a street and I can I can't help you if, if someone goes into cardiac arrest, but I can tell you who's liable for the damages. Um, so th there's a whole bunch of people who are able to scratch that itch to give people a window into industries that they wouldn't, wouldn't normally have. There's, for example, there's a former felon, a former prisoner who's now making a living. Uh, he's got a, a huge channel where he just talks about how uh, portrayals of prisons is uh, accurate or inaccurate in TV shows and all the legal events that are going on in the news right now, how it's uh, how it really is affected by real life prison events or not. There's room for everyone. It's absolutely incredible. There's a channel, this is incredible, that does nothing but ride elevators. And they have hundreds of thousands of viewers who just watch in real time as someone rides different elevators. That's awesome. Neville was telling me, my good buddy, that there's a lot of shows where you can watch someone catch a fish and cook it right on the beach like tons of these videos. And I was, there's something for everyone out there. I like your point that it's available for everyone. I guess my assumption sometimes is that were you are always loving to make videos and share things? Or is it, you said, hey, there's no content out there like this. And that's the opportunity. Because I think a lot of people are waiting for the idea and hoping to be inspired. So that's why I'm curious how you approached it. Yeah. You know, I, I get so many people reaching out to me that they say that they want to be a YouTuber. And what they really want to do is play video games and just post the videos online and make money from that. But that's not, <laughs> it's not really how that works. For me, it was a little of both that it felt like I had a, a voice to contribute to uh, the discussion. But also, I really like making videos. As it happens, I learned to do video editing when I was in high school, when my senior English teacher gave us the option of either writing a 10 or 20 page paper about English literature, or do a video presentation on some sort of English, uh, English work of, of literature. And my three best friends and I decided that we would make a video about it. It ended up taking us about collectively about 8,000 hours over the course of the school year between the four of us. And it turned into an hour long project where we learned everything from scratch and just did a, a, a Saturday Night Live style skit of like every work of English literature that we read uh, that year. And I'm still to this day incredibly proud of it. And I, the skills that I learned in high school, I didn't really use them in college or law school. But lo and behold, after practicing as a lawyer for years, I learned that they were more or less transferable. And I 
read up on the newest technology and started putting my videos out there. So yeah, it was, it was a combination of, of knowing that I could do it, having a little bit of experience and just thinking that I could advance the ball in the public discourse with my personal perspective. What made you think there was an opportunity for you? A bunch of doctors were doing reasonably well on YouTube. I don't know what, what it is, considering that you'd think lawyers were the kind of people that would be more vocal about things. But for some reason, and Ali is a, a perfect example, Ali Abdal, there are tons of doctors on YouTube. And uh, there just weren't that many lawyers at the time. A another great example is Dr. Mike, who's really doing some really fantastic uh, videos, both entertaining and also just teaching people about medicine, especially in the COVID lockdown times. But you may, may or may not know that there is a huge rivalry between doctors and lawyers. And I, I was not going to stand for the doctors occupying all the space on YouTube. That, that just simply wasn't going to happen. So you saw some validation of their popularity and like, hey, there's other categories out there that there's just not as much competition. Yeah, exactly. It was sort of uh, an idea of validating experiments to where at least some of my early videos are were very much of a kind that other people were doing. And, you know, I, I've since branched out from that. I still do uh, reaction videos to portrayals of lawyers in, in popular media in the same way that, that Dr. Mike does reactions to portrayals of, of doctors. But, you know, I, I use that as a foothold to create other different video series that have gone on to be just as popular, if not more popular than my my original videos. One of the challenges that I think, you know, as a lawyer, I'm assuming you make six figures, give or take, hopefully. Yeah, that's a fair assumption. Wink twice. Uh, so <laughs> I think what I've noticed from friends who are making six figures is that it's hard to do something that doesn't make six figures right away. I have a few friends who have, you know, good day jobs. I'm probably like 100, 200, 300. And they've done these other YouTube or they've done podcasts or they've done a blog or maybe e-commerce. And it's like, hey, I made $100 this month, but I made, you know, 15,000 in salary. And then they kind of give up on that. So I was kind of curious how you, what your mindset was. Was it, hey, I'm going to do this for a year. Hey, I'm just going to do it as a hobby. Like, how did you approach it coming in? Yeah, I can definitely see that being part of the mindset. But I think Tim Ferriss nailed it when he said that in terms of doing a side hustle, literally do it on the side, do it nights and weekends, <laughs> try it out. Uh, make sure that you can validate your idea, create your minimum viable product and put it out there and see if it grabs traction. And the thing about gaining some success on YouTube or as, as you well know, you know creating a, a product, whether it's um, you know, a video course or a physical product, if you can make $1, then you can probably make $10. And if you can make $10, then you can probably make $1,000. And it's the same way with subscribers on YouTube. If, if you can get 1,000 subscribers, you can definitely get 10,000 subscribers. And then you can get 100,000, and then you can get a million. Uh, there's really not much of a barrier there, except just the time that you're willing to put into it. For me, the advantage to flip that mentality on its head in terms of, you know, I'm already doing well in, in one thing, why would I you know bother to branch out? Because I was not relying on YouTube early on for my livelihood and was doing reasonably well in, in a different career, it gave me the flexibility to experiment. And it gave me the flexibility to talk to people who were really experts in their field. And you know, I could learn from the best. And and if I put a video out and nobody views it, well Okay, no one views it. You know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Eventually, 
you start building traction. And a lot of people will say you have to do 100 videos before uh, you can even start to contemplate things turning around. And that's it's so right. I mean, everyone's first videos are terrible, really without exception. And you just have to put in the reps. And I would say that even if you do 200, 300 videos and you never get quote unquote success on YouTube, it's still a worthwhile thing to do because you learn how to do it. As long as you go into that process willing to be critical about your own work product and really being willing to learn and get better so that your 100th video is better than your first video and your 200th video is even better than your 100th video, that's absolutely a worthwhile thing to do because I have honestly never in my entire life regretted learning a new skill. And being able to make a video, heck, even a, a PowerPoint presentation, a good PowerPoint presentation, <laughs> that's a good you video. just doubled your salary <laughs> wherever you are. If you, can, if you can make a PowerPoint presentation that entertains people and informs people, you just doubled your salary in any industry. I tell people that as long as you don't measure your success based on your YouTube analytics, you should do YouTube. It's a really good thing to do. In some respects, <laughs> it's terrible to say, but being able to put together an entertaining and informative video might be more important than writing skills in this day and age. I don't think that's fair, and it's hmm. probably not true everywhere. Certainly, as a lawyer, someone who writes all the time, being a good writer is... Everyone should be a good writer, probably first and foremost. And frankly, you kind of have to be a good writer if, if you want to be uh, able to do a good video. But we put such a premium on audio-visual communication these days. Everyone should do it. I think one of the things that you said that really resonated is what we're proud of. There's, there's two pieces of that. One, I think there's a message that I've always said as a 10-year rule. So it's like, find something you'd like to do. Do it for 10 years and you're going to be successful. But I think what you said, is, which is also the key part of the 10-year rule, is you got to keep improving over the 10 years. I think the second thing about pride is it's very interesting for everyone to reflect. I know for myself, it sounds like for you too, is like, what are we proud of? Like, and you were proud of your eighth grade project. Why? Because it was really hard. And I think it's interesting, like this YouTube thing lately that I've been getting back into and, and really enjoying is, is not easy. Like there's days it's really fun. Like today I recorded a video before you and I, it's like hot, I'm tired. I don't feel like doing it. And I did it and I actually felt a little better afterwards. But it's one of these things that you do feel proud of the things that are, are harder and do take effort. Yeah. I honestly think that if you find something is hard, you should do more of it in all of your life. I'm a terrible dancer. I think dancing is hard. That is a signal to me. I need to do more dancing. I need to take some dancing lessons. I'm not a good singer. It, it scares the hell out of me to go out there and, and sing. That is an indication that I need to do that more. It used to be the case with public speaking that I, it was difficult. It's not difficult anymore. And now I think I'm pretty good at it. But I have never regretted sort of leaning in to the things that are hard. It has always been the recipe for success. And, it, and I think that dovetails with the sort of learning mindset too, because you can learn in two ways. You can learn in a linear way and you can take one skill and just get better at it or in a sort of spiderweb-like way where you have multiple skills and maybe you're, you're making 10 units of progress in one skill and five units of progress in another. And together it forms this weave that makes your overall, let's say, area of success way, way more likely. And so there's time for linear progress, but there's absolutely time to spread out as well into other modes of learning, 
we often think about the uh, Anders Ericsson 10,000 hours rule where it's if you put in 10,000 hours of something, you're likely to be a, a world-class expert in that thing. But I found that there's sort of a 100-hour rule that where if you put in 100 hours of something, you might not be a world-class expert in that thing, but you're passably good at that thing. In 100 hours, you could learn almost anything in a way that would seem incomprehensible to someone who has not put any time into that thing. I would almost say that most people should be putting 100 hours into you know, 10 or 15 or 20 different modes. And you never know how that success is going to come about. I never knew that as a practicing lawyer that the the video editing skills that I learned in my senior <laughs> senior high school English project was going to come back to help me. But I literally put in thousands of hours of video editing back in the day and it translated. Who would have thought? But here I am on the other side of it. And now it seems like it makes perfect sense that um, with this history of debate in high school and mock trial in college and video editing in high school um, and practicing law. Oh, yeah, of course that came together and you have found some success on YouTube. But it's only in retrospect. That That is a crazy, crazy thing that no one could have predicted even 10 years ago. And it, it's only in retrospect that like these skills coming together form the basis for for some professional success. I'm as surprised as anyone. <laughs> I feel that way sometimes when I like when I, I get paid and I'm like, wow, I can't believe I get paid to do this stuff. And I feel like that's how I want everyone to feel. Going to a million and a half subscribers in, in a year and a half sounds like you cheated, which I like. And so how did you cheat? And I'm saying cheating in a positive way. A couple ways. One is that I was a absolute student of YouTube. I basically have stopped watching TV. I stopped watching a long time ago. And I just learned everything I absolutely could about YouTube. And I learned the specific tactics. I learned the analytics. I learned what other people were doing. I excuse me, I ruthlessly Ruthless. stole from so many different channels to form an amalgamation of what is now my channel and, and what is sort of my, my character. Um, how I, I like to to make things, and I just if I saw something was working in in one channel, it could be a cooking show. It could have been a children's channel, and I just I took everything that I could to make my channel as good as it possibly could be. And I would say the other way I cheated is that I cheated is the wrong word. Uh, hacked. I the, know <laughs> the way the other way I hacked it is that I realized what I was good at and what I was not good at and was really time consuming and which for me was video editing. My time was better spent in front of the camera, writing, researching, coming up with ideas and just maybe it wasn't fully formed, but sitting down in front of the camera, recording myself and being able to hand that off to somebody else who was way better at video editing than, than I was. I mean, I, I, I didn't have time and I don't have time to do the video editing anymore. And my video editors are so much better than I would ever be that it just made sense to delegate that to somebody else. It honestly takes longer to, to edit the videos than it does to write the things. That's just time that I can spend somewhere else. I think what's interesting to observe about your channel, there's two observations. And, and I think sometimes lately I'm like, oh man, I'm talking about YouTube all the time, but it's what I'm working on and what I'm interested in. And I think it can apply to a lot of different business uh, angles. I think it's really fascinating to look at someone's thumbnails from the beginning to now and see the difference. I think most people are just too afraid to start, which we talked about, and I don't, I don't think we have to get into. I guess one thing that I've kind of debated, 
and it seems like you've embraced is like you're doing the reaction videos, you're doing a meme video, you're doing like this movie or you're doing like this contemporary thing. How do you think about that? I like to put out stuff that I would want to watch. And I see people being really creative. I think I'm also pretty creative. I've come up with videos that I think are pretty unlike what anyone else is doing. But if someone has a good idea, no one no one has an, a monopoly on on the ideas themselves. And so I just want to make videos that I would want to watch and that I feel like help inform people and, and help make things better. I'll give you a tip. I would love a tip. Related to your observation about the thumbnails, which is that it is true that usually you can see over time that people's thumbnails have gotten better. Uh, they've really learned to hone their channel. The thing is, though, why is it that thumbnails should be set in stone? Why is it that if you have a good video, what would happen if you changed the thumbnail now and made it even better? And the answer is that if you feed the algorithm gods, the algorithm gods will reward you. And so I'm constantly changing my thumbnails, even on videos that are years old, because number one, I think they're still good videos, but maybe my thumbnail could be better. And the thumbnail is absolutely the most important thing. Title and thumbnail, super important. Um, because if no one clicks on your video, they'll never see it. You can't get watch time for someone that never clicks on a video. Not to put too fine a point on it, I think your your thumbnails could use a little work in that respect. No, tell me. I want the feedback. Well, so <laughs> at the time of this recording, the last video that you put out uh, features a thumbnail of you shirtless behind a blank wall, behind a, a or in front of a blank wall, in front of, behind behind a laptop. I don't think that's a particularly enticing thumbnail. And I think you need to recognize that people like emotion. People want to be enticed. The thumbnail on someone's screen is going to be a fraction of an inch big. So you have to, you have to get to people where they are and you have to give them a reason to click on it. So between the title and thumbnail, that's all that people are going to see in order to click on, on your video. So you've got to make those things as good as they possibly can be and experiment, experiment on old videos. See if you can make the click through rate better on old videos. And you can make old videos funnel towards your new ones too, and vice versa. So just because it's old doesn't mean it's dead. It's still going to get views and you can always uh, make that better. You can make the rates of clicking through better. I think this applies in any business. Like if you're making physical products, if you're doing service-based business, if you're a consultant. So how are you approaching what products or videos to, to create? Number one is that I have different video series. I have four or five different series or buckets so that at any given time, I don't have to do the, the mental work to come up with a completely new concept. I have four different series, maybe five. All I got to do is figure out, do I want to make a video in this bucket, this bucket, or this bucket? Granted, the majority of them are sort of news-related law review pieces. But still, like that, that constraint allows me to focus in on what I want to do. And for the most part, if I'm thinking about what I call a law review piece, where I am taking some legal concept in the news and explaining the, the law behind it, I am just trying to come up with what I think is the most important legal issue of the day. So is it protesters being beaten up by federal police? Is it a copyright dispute on YouTube? At any given day, that could be completely different. I'm just out there trying to think of what is the legal issue that people most care about these days? Because I feel like that's my lane. 
I am allowed to explain legal issues and no one can say, oh, this corporate lawyer, he's not allowed to you know, opine on this particular thing. I feel like that's where my voice is. That's where usually I can contribute the most, some something unique to the discourse. And so I'm just looking for the most important legal issue or the legal issue that is taking up the most mindshare of people of the current day. And I am going to research that and I will put out an explainer of all the things that you wanted to know about that legal issue, but were too afraid to ask. I like the buckets thing. I think it's kind of like, what are your core, we call it core messages. And I think we could even be stronger. Like what's the themes of like, hey, we do business reviews. Hey, we did this thing. And just kind of finding the ones that are working. But I mean, your videos, and I could be misconstrued, it looked like they just like popped immediately. Maybe there's more to it, but what's with that? I started my channel in February of 2017 as a, a place where I could put tips for law students to do well in law school. Eventually, after I gained a little bit of traction there, I created a course called Legal Eagle Prep that was an information course that put all of my tips together and I sold it as a, a package to help law students do well in law school because I happened to do pretty well in law school. I mean, I had a whole system of how to do that. And I actually refrained from doing more general interest things for a long time, probably six to eight months, because I was worried that if I did things that applied to a wider audience, that it would dilute my audience of, at the time, it was about 10,000 law students, because no one would watch my channel unless you were a law student. And eventually I bit the bullet and I started doing more general interest reactions to suits, reactions to a few good men, that, that kind of thing. And the channel did sort of pop relatively overnight. It went from 10,000 subscribers to about 150,000 subscribers over the course of three or four weeks in August of 2018. So there was a slow burn. I mean, I put in my reps. I had dozens of videos that were specifically aimed to law students that you can still see. They're still on my channel. There's no reason most people would want to watch them unless you're going to law school. But I learned a lot making those videos. I learned mm. to really like it. I learned to systematize it and get really good at it. And then when I was ready to do the, the more general interest, hey, I'm a lawyer, I'm going to explain the legal concept sort of thing, it popped really quickly. Because a lot of people complain that the algorithm is being unfair, that their content is so good, and it's really just a shame that, that YouTube is punishing them for whatever. They have a purple banner or something like that. I have never seen anything that is more of a pure meritocracy than the YouTube algorithm. If you have a good video, you can go from zero subscribers to a million subscribers overnight. It's happened before. It's absolutely a pure meritocracy. And if you're not getting that, you need to self-reflect because it's not the algorithm's fault. The algorithm is now to punish you. YouTube wants you to stay mm. on the website as long as possible. So it will show you the videos that you want to see as a viewer. The algorithm never pushes videos on people. It will only pull videos to those who want to see them. Um, so I think in the same way that I assume that if someone came to you and said, you know, my product is so good, I, the, the market is just punishing me. Like, no, that's not how the market works. Maybe your marketing needs to be better. Maybe your, your name of the product, maybe the functionality needs to change. But the market doesn't punish people because it's capricious. The market lines up people with the things that they want. And if you don't have something that people want, people won't come and find it. So it's, uh, it, it's a really incredible meritocracy. 
Well, I like, and I'm trying to summarize your buckets as I look through, and I think this applies to a lot of different content creators and businesses in terms of products. So it's like, you're doing React stuff, you're doing relative news stuff. So like George Floyd, uh, DOJ to Mrs. Flynn. That's kind of interesting. I like that. It also makes it easier for you to think about what you're going to be creating. Like you can experiment outside of it, but for the most part, focus on the, the ones that work. Yeah, I mean, you can look at my playlist and see what my channel series are. Uh, as you said, I've got the uh, the legal explainers. I've got the reactions. Mm. I have a series of animated videos that are uh, true crime inspired. I've got a couple others. And yeah, it's, it's easy for me to, to plan ahead that some are very timely and I've got to move very quickly to, to capitalize on that and to explain while it's still something that people care about. And my God, over the last few years, the news cycles are so, so fast. A news story that would be in the press for months is now in the, in the press for like 18 hours. So you really have to move fast on that kind of stuff. Two things around that. How much do your videos, because they're, they're just timely, pop and then no one watches them again? That's something I've noticed with certain videos of mine. And I'm like, oh, every video needs to be evergreen. Oh, it's huge. But it very much depends on the video itself. A lot of videos that are, that are truly evergreen will... Have, be a slow burn. They'll start with a certain view count and then months or years later, you'll see a pop. In fact, the two or three videos that I did early on when I was, it was still a law school focused channel. I had released those for, for weeks. I was so absolutely convinced that they were going to be absolute bangers. I settled down. I made them as good as I could be. And I was fully expecting to be a, a YouTube millionaire the next day. And then just nothing happened. They did slightly better than my average law school video. And they just sat there. And I said, okay, well, that's too bad. I moved on with my life. And then four weeks later, there was just a spike overnight. And I started getting a flood of emails that, that were from friends who were, that were saying, did you just do this video? I, I, it was recommended to me. I, I didn't even know you were on YouTube. Uh, it was just went absolutely gangbusters. So really... If you're doing a, a video on a subject that is incredibly timely, you should probably expect that it's going to pop in the beginning and then peter out after the first week. There, there's a real um, decay rate that you can almost set your watch to it. So someone like Phil DeFranco, I've seen his videos. They'll do literally a million views in the first two days and then basically nothing after that. And his videos are good. They're really great. They're very timely. But I don't think that he ever expects that his videos are going to do millions of views a year later. They're, and they're just, they're just not going to. Do you mention your, some of your benchmark targets? Like how do you know a video is popping and then what's the, like the CTR or watch time or key things that, that people should be paying attention to? AKA me, I'm asking for myself. This is a whole dark art to itself. YouTube will rank your videos uh, based on how well they're doing in the, the time frame that they've been released. So you'll know right off the bat if a video is doing well in comparison to your previous videos or not. I have certain click-through rates that I aim for. I can't give you a number because it's different for everyone. So really, you would just look at your own channel and you would say, here is my average click-through rate and this one is underperforming. So I'm going to switch out the uh, thumbnail or I'm going to change the title and I'm going to try and, and get that better, get it above average. And then that average will change uh, over time and, and as the videos start to do better. So you're really just fighting against yourself. You're just always trying to improve your last video. So there's no number that you want to hit. Mr. Beast will do 70% click-through rate on 10 million views, which is 
absolutely insane. No one can ever replicate that. But then someone else might be able to pull 10% off of uh, a million impressions. And that's amazing for their channel. It really just depends on your particular channel. What's the range for you on those different ones? Click-through rate for me on a new video is probably around 15%. The thing is that rate will go down, though, as you get more impressions. The way the algorithm works is that if you're getting traction with one core audience, it then expands that out, like sort of layers of an onion, until it starts getting diminishing returns. But a byproduct of that is that, you know, if you have a thousand impressions, you might have a, I don't know, 50% click-through rate because maybe those thousand people were your subscribers. And YouTube says, hey, great. So we're going to show that video to 10,000 people. And then your click-through rate might drop to 10%. But 10% of, of that is still really good. So it's going to keep going out. So I've had videos that are doing a million views where the click-through rate is you know less than 3%. It's always a moving target. And, and the only thing that you can do is compare it to yourself. It's probably a good point for life as well. But I, I think the only thing I, I, it's helpful for hearing yours is, you know, talking to different people like ours ranges around six to 7%. And so we're trying to get it to 10% as, you know, keep improving it around that to that. But it is helpful to know that, oh, okay, there's a fit. It's like the four minute mile to some extent. It's like 15% is out there, 70% out there. And sometimes I'm like, I don't want to know what's out there as well. Cause I'm like, well, if we don't know what we can't do, we can go as far as we want. Yeah, I think in your particular case, I'd be looking at the click-through rate for non-subscribers. A subscriber has already signed up to like your stuff, so they're going to have an artificially high mm. click-through rate. But at your current subscriber number, which is relatively low, or well, I, it's it's not. It is. Rel- it is. Yeah, I, I appreciate everyone though. It's lower than you want it to be. So much lower. Uh, so what you want to do is make sure that your videos are clickable for non-subscribers. Do you have any impressions of the channel or ways that you would approach it or recommendations for my channel? So as we discussed, I think the thumbnails need work. Looking at your a handful of your past uh, recent videos, the video editing is good. You clearly know what a pattern interrupt is. You're delivering good information and it's, it's highly teachable and you are, are keeping it entertaining in the sense that it is a flow of, of information. But I think you should recognize that information delivery is only one of the value propositions that can be provided on YouTube. I think one thing that's lacking on the, the, a couple of the videos that I, I was looking at. Yeah, bring it. It just didn't have any humor. It was a constant barrage of highly actionable content, but it kind of lacked some mirth. And you're a funny guy. I, I don't think so. there's, a, there's any reason why you can't be a little self-deprecating to add some humor to it so that there's, and it doesn't have to be like nonstop laughter. You, you, I don't think you're a stand-up comedian or anything. And we don't go to stand-up comedians for, uh, for business advice. But I think that you can sort of fire on multiple cylinders where you're providing interesting information, but also providing entertainment in a different way. I think that you might be able to provide more narrative stories as well so that people can connect not only to the information delivery through the bullet pointed facts, but also through, uh, through storytelling. I think you should, should experiment with longer form content. Your videos tend to be below 10 minutes. And YouTube, as I said, really likes to keep people on YouTube. That is their one goal in life. And 
a video that's under 10 minutes can't deliver more than 10 minutes of watch time. And so watch time is a really big metric. And you can't purposefully make videos longer. I'm lucky that I'm really long-winded and I have to explain really complicated legal subjects. And luckily, people tend to stick around for all of this, this legal discussion. But you know, my videos are 20, 25 minutes, 30 minutes long. And so my average watch time is roughly double the length of your entire video. So if YouTube has a choice between, say, a, a Noah Kagan video that is has an average watch time of, say, four minutes, say half of a 50% retention on an eight-minute video versus my video, which has 50% retention of a 30-minute video, in other words, 15 minutes, it's going to show people the video that's going to keep them on YouTube for 15 minutes. The thing is, all videos should be exactly as long as they have to be and absolutely no longer. So you, you might want to think about a way in which you have a longer video that generates more watch time, but not at the expense of watchability or, or retention. So it's, it's a really hard thing to do. It's a very difficult needle to thread. I think some of the thing I'm like in denial about is like what's already working and popular on YouTube. And I'm trying to just go, we're the team, we're going our own direction. But I think if the stream is going one way, like there is something to be said, like go with the stream. So try some of the React videos. I, I am funny. I guess lately some of the videos is just more like bullet point one, bullet point two. I like your point about stories. The thing I've, I've thought about YouTube as well, it's like you either are there to learn or be entertained, at least in my impression. Oh, that is absolutely not a dichotomy. The, those are not separate things. And in my experience, they tend to go hand in hand. I'm, I'm a co-owner of a talent agency that specializes in edutube. We're a whole bunch of people that do educational YouTube related things. And most of the, the videos that me and my friends put out, I find it incredibly entertaining to watch while, while also learning as well. So I personally think of my channel as being a Trojan horse. I am trying to meet people where they are so I can give them the information that I think that would be helpful to them. So it's a complete Trojan horse delivery system. It's all a question of what you want to accomplish. It helps to meet people where they are so you can give them what they need. Yeah, I definitely think there's certain formulas that are working and it's just being a little bit more open. I guess, I don't know if I'm not open-minded, but just trying some of the things that are already working on other channels and being a little bit more aware of that versus like, you know, I think I'm trying to invent everything or just, you know, start all over. Not start all over, but like do it from scratch. I think you should have fun with it. It shouldn't be a, a chore. And also really depends on on what you're trying to accomplish as well. I mean, the good news is that your your cohort, of which I would probably consider... Ramit Sethi and, and Tim Ferriss have also not succeeded on YouTube. First of all, at least your thumbnails are, are better than theirs. And they're putting out videos, but you know, Tim's podcast does you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of downloads. And he puts that up on YouTube and that same video version of his podcast will do a couple thousand views. So you can't just assume that what works in one area will work in another. If I can pick on Ramit's channel for a moment. Dude, I love it. This is interesting. If you look at his current videos, it's a sea of beige thumbnails with nothing but him in a, in a sweater and, and some text. There's just no reason why anyone would click on those videos. And I don't know why you would go to the trouble of putting these videos out if you're not going to give it the best shot of people watching it. And I really like uh, Ramit's stuff. I really like Tim's stuff. But they are not using the medium of YouTube in a way that makes really any sense. So you, know, yeah, you, for, you can learn from their mistakes. I dig it. 
I dig it. Who do you learn from lately? I watch so much YouTube. I'm constantly learning. And I, I'm lucky that I work with a lot of the best YouTubers that are out there. So you recently interviewed Matt Diabella. He is basically the YouTuber's YouTuber at this point. He, I think so much of, of our uh, success depends on your frame of reference. And so I try to have as my frame of reference the absolute best. And Matt's videos are so gorgeous. He tends to do videos about minimalism, let's say, or productivity. But it doesn't matter if you don't care at all about minimalism or productivity. You will love the cinematography. And he's also just incredibly funny. In that same vein, uh, there's, of course, Peter McKinnon, who started off as a sort of videographer, camera guy, and has branched out into amazing things. And on the educational side of things, there's, of course, Ali Abdal. Thomas Frank uh, would be a great one, I think, for you to learn. He, you would think, uh, would get pigeonholed into the sort of information disbursement category, but he, he frankly, uh, has learned a lot from Matt Diavella. Uh, Thomas and, and Matt are friends, and his stuff has gotten so much more uh, beautiful and entertaining. On the more technical side, I would say Real Engineering by Brian McManus. Uh, Half is interesting, and Wendover Productions, uh, Second Life Lore, in terms of sort of video essays, they are just the absolute best in terms of uh, which. What were those? Those three were pretty fast. Uh, Real Engineering, Half is interesting, Wendover Productions, and Second Life Lore. On Wendover Productions, how do you spell that? W e n d o v e r. Wendover. I think it's interesting to kind of learn from, it's like one, you want to create your own style, which I think you eventually do. It's like you kind of, as you know, Ollie and I have talked about kind of copy some of these ones, learn from them, and then eventually find the the part that works for you. Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of financial or quasi financial stuff, which I think your channel sort of might lend itself to, uh, Graham Stepham is uh, killing it these days. He's focuses on sort of real estate and financial related things. And he breaks up his content based on some vlog related things related to his rental properties and then sort of information related to finances and that sort of thing for the niche that I think you're going for. And remember, you don't have to stay in any particular niche. You can branch out and experiment and, and you probably should. I think Thomas Frank and Graham Stepham would be uh, great people to learn from. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you loved the episode. If you did, make sure to go check out and subscribe to Devin's YouTube channel, Legal Eagle. Like I mentioned in the intro, I really like his videos about Tiger King, which is super funny. You can't go wrong with a video on his channel. Next, text a colleague you love them. Hello, friend. Let's start a YouTube channel about our boring jobs. And before you go, don't email me, but tweet me at Noah Kagan or on Instagram. I've actually been messaging a little bit more there at Noah Kagan as well. Let me know what you thought of the episode. Also, by the way, remember to go subscribe to my email list. (laughs) I put out my best tips into a single short email each week and hook you up with exclusive content just for subscribers. You can get that at sendfox.com slash Noah. Plus, you can use sendfox.com to create your own newsletter for free. Also, check out halldrop.com. That's H-A-U-L drop.com. It is the best place to discover and share real life products from small businesses. Honestly, it's super impressive. Go check it out. Sign up. You'll be just really impressed. I've been seeing really cool products that it's recommending for me and we built it for ourselves and for gorgeous people like you. Final couple shout outs to my amazing team. Seriously, these guys make me sound so much better than I am. Special thanks to Jason who does all the podcasts. He's podcasttech.com. David, Mitchell, Jeremy, and Michael and Jen from the dork team for all the magic y'all do. 
And final shout out to Sean Stubbs, our director of business operations at sumo.com. I'm really impressed with how far you've come and I'm really excited to see how far you're going to be going, my man. And I'll see you in the squash court. Have a lovely day. What's your favorite hour of the day? <laughs>